All right, I want to start the uh, message off a little bit differently today. I need you guys to all take out your cell phones. And we are going to do a poll if it, if it works. Yes. So far, so good. Click. Try dragging the window over a little bit to the left. There you go. Keep going. Right there. Nice. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you guys to tell me what makes a movie great. And here's how you do it. Um, send a text message to the number 22333. That's 22333. And then in the body of the message, um, write A, B, C, D, or E. Now you write A if you think what makes a movie great is an intriguing plot twist. Type the letter B if you think that Relatable characters make a movie great. Type C if you think great actors make a movie great. Type D if you think it's explosions. And type E if you think it's a good ending. Hmm? No. You, the number, you just text the number. Oh, maybe you do have to do that. I probably should have. Oh, I know what you got to do. You got to type, uh, the body of the message has to be David Teller 354. I'm so thankful I have a young student here. Let's see if that worked. Yep, boom. That worked. Sweet. So you need to text David Teller 354. Yeah, and then A, B, or C. We have one for explosions. That's good. You're not really supposed to. <laughs> She's over there. Got to get my intriguing plot twist. Now we know what it's, why it's so high. So most of you think it's an intriguing plot twist. Interesting. I think really all of them are important, right? Like if you're missing any one of those, maybe not explosions. It's possible to have a movie without explosions. But if, if a movie is missing one of those elements, chances are it's going to feel like an empty movie. And I think that's really um, interesting because movies have become such an important part of our culture, haven't they? We love a good hero movie with a lot of action, right? Or a suspenseful plot twister. Or a romantic comedy from time to time, maybe on your wife's birthday. But God's story of redemption through Jesus Christ is a much better story than any movie. And the best part is that it's completely true. The crazy thing to me about God's story is that the epic conclusion 
is often something that we don't take time to think about. The ending is the glorification of Jesus. And without this ending, salvation is incomplete. We're not going to do that in justice today. As we're going to take a look at how Jesus is glorified, as told in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. We're in the middle of a series on the glory of Christmas. And we're walking through this passage of Philippians chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 5 through 11. The purpose of this series is to see how all things that make Christmas feel like a glorious time of year, the Christmas lights, the family, the presents, the snow, <laughs> all of that is good, but the true glory of Christmas comes from Jesus himself. And that's why the word Christ is in the word Christmas. It's all about him. These verses in Philippians show how Jesus humbled himself by taking on human flesh. And then he submitted himself to the Father's will by dying on a cross. Last week we learned about how Jesus' death was the purpose of Jesus coming to the planet Earth. And today we're going to learn how the cross was a part of the story, but it, it's finished by Jesus being glorified. In other words, the cradle is incomplete without the cross. But the cross is incomplete without the crown. We're going to conclude the verses today in verses 9 through 11, where Jesus is glorified by the Father as a result of his humility. I'd like to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, as I pray for this morning's message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ that we celebrated two days ago. Lord, we thank you for this, this time when we remember how you humbled yourself and became a baby. And you lived your time on this earth and you died on a cross. But Lord, we thank you that as we learn today, that that's not the end of the story. Lord, that you are exalted as king of the universe. And we have a hope that the brokenness of this world will not be forever, but that we can look forward to a time when everything is made new under your glorious reign. Lord, I pray that our hearts would desire those times and that our hearts would be opened to the things that you have to teach us today about that. Lord, I pray that you would be present here in this room and that I would be a vessel of your truth and that you would speak through these words and that you would help us to grow in our understanding of you, and that it would give us a greater desire to follow you as our Savior and King. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to kind of read the whole um, few verses of Philippians that we've been going through, starting in verses 5, which reads, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In these verses that we're looking at today, specifically verses 9 through 11, we see that the first word in this section of this passage is the word therefore. And this points to the fact that Jesus' glorification happens as a result of his humility in coming to the earth and dying on the cross. After studying the importance of Jesus' glorification over the past few days, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus humbling himself is a crucial element in the way that which he is glorified. These verses talk clearly about Jesus reigning as king when he's glorified. And in order to fully understand the significance of Jesus' glorification, we need to understand its place in the grand story of God's plan for redemption. The best place we can learn about this is from the teaching of Jesus himself. When we study the Gospels, and specifically the things that Jesus taught, we see one major theme dominating the things that he spoke. And that theme is the kingdom of God. Jesus is constantly talking about what the kingdom of God is like. He often starts many parables with those exact words. The kingdom of God is like, da, da, da. He is talking and sharing with his disciples about how to become one of its citizens. And he teaches both through his lifestyle and the times that he shared with his disciples on how to live as members of God's kingdom. Simply put, the kingdom refers to God's rule over everything. Unfortunately, though, it's not that simple. As right now, God's kingdom faces opposition. And that opposition comes both from Satan and from the effects of our sin. And, this, and the destructive effect of our sin is caused by us humans who brought this sin into the world when we chose not to trust God. But rather, we tried to take our own satisfaction into our hands and find it and essentially take it rather than allow God to give it to us. This happened first when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit that they were told not to eat from. And it continues today in each one of our hearts. The result of sin is that the world is now horribly broken, unable to submit itself to God's reign. And sin, like a disease, has infected the world far beyond any human remedy. Human sin is the root cause of every sorrow. It's the cause of every hurt and every loss and every disappointment that we face here on earth. Before sin even came into existence, God told Adam and Eve that the penalty for sin is death. And this death is both physical and spiritual. We need to die first physically where we no longer are breathing in air and keeping our physical bodies alive. But it's also a spiritual death where we are eternally separated from God's holy presence because his holiness and our sin cannot coexist. Instead, we need to face eternal punishment for our rebellion. Throughout our rebellion, however, 
God continually promised that a coming king would restore the kingdom. And the most prominent example of this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God comes before David, King David, when King David wanted to build God a temple, and David said, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to let your son do that. But I'm going to promise you that through your line, a king will come that will be greater than any king this world has ever seen. And that king will reign forever. And we learn throughout the rest of the Bible that this king would undo the effects of human rebellion and bring people back unto the rule of this, of this king. And we know that this king came as Jesus 2,000 years ago, and he died on a cross, paying the penalty for sin that we deserved. He took it upon himself, and he opened a way for a restored relationship with God. And the Bible promises that King Jesus will come back and completely establish his eternal kingdom as promised. When Jesus came to this earth, however, he did more than just die. He spent three years building into the lives of 12 men. He cared for them. He taught them. He prepared them. And he discipled them. These 12 men went on to start a movement called the church. And after Jesus ascended into heaven... The church is God's current vehicle for bringing kingdom values to a rebellious world. The goal of the kingdom is to orient all worship toward the creator, redeemer God, and King Jesus. So we see from this that the kingdom is both a destination and it's a journey. It's a destination in that it's something that's future tense, its fullness has not yet been realized and that it will be fully realized when Jesus returns to this earth in glory. But it's a journey in that it's already begun to take effect and it started when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And we have been given the amazing privilege to live in God's kingdom now and to work on our own salvation and the tension between our redemption in Jesus, but yet we still are tainted by sin. And the kingdom message, though, is that the broken world can be healed through the atoning death of God's incarnate Son, and that Jesus has started this movement, the church, so that the redeemed people from every nation and ethnicity can bring God's rescue mission to the whole world so that God is worshipped as he should be. It is in this that we see God's will for the church. That his glory and reign no longer faces opposition by redeeming sinners through making disciples of sinners. And that is the mission that God calls us to as his church. But in order for Jesus to even start to bring about this kingdom, as we said, Jesus had to humble himself. He had to take on the very nature of a servant he had to come in the form of a man, as we learned about over the past few weeks in this series, The Glory of Christmas. And in other words, Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. One of the best examples that I can think of to illustrate how Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will is the idea of an actor who might be one of the greatest actors 
you know, of our generation. They get paid well. Everyone knows their name and they're at the top of their game. Yet, when they come in and do a movie, they submit themselves to the vision of the director. And they allow the director to tell them what to do and how to act and and the lines that they want to say. Pretty much everything that they do comes from the director. And this allows the director and the actors to work together and create a perfect masterpiece. And even the best movie, though, created by actors here on earth can never compete with the story of God through Jesus. Under God's direction, Jesus carried out the perfect script to fix our broken world and bring wholeness to our relationship with God again. The script included Jesus humbling himself and coming to the earth in the form of a baby, living a perfect sinless life, discipling 12 men to begin a kingdom movement. And it included dying on the cross and paying the penalty for sin, rising again three days later. He then ascended into heaven and promised that he will return in the future in glory to establish his eternal kingdom. And the reason I went over that again is because I think every single part of that story is an essential element of the gospel. And without any one piece, we miss redemption as it was completely meant to be. Think about it. Without his life on earth, we would not have been given an example on how to live as citizens of of God's kingdom. And we wouldn't have been told to make disciples so that our lives now, here on earth, can have meaning and purpose. Without Jesus' death, we would still have to pay the penalty for our own sin and would have to spend eternity separated from God. Without his resurrection, we would not have hope for eternal life and death would have its final say on our mortal bodies. But instead, we are resurrected and given new bodies. And most relevant for today, without his glorification, we would not have a redeemed world worth coming back to life for. I'm not sure how you guys feel, but if eternal life just simply meant that we would live forever on this broken, fallen planet, I'm not sure that really would be worth it. But because Jesus is glorified, he is the perfect king who has a kingdom worth living in and will be free from the opposition of sin. Jesus' glorification and reign is the full completion of the gospel. It gives us the ability to spend eternity in a world that is cleansed of sin, that is redeemed from its brokenness and made perfect through the power of his resurrection. Now that we've established the need for the kingdom of God in God's grand story of redemption, let's take some time and see what this kingdom will look like when Jesus returns in glory. The passage in Philippians gives us many clues as to some of the characteristics of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. So let's take a look and dive deeper into these verses of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, which state, Therefore God exalted him in exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see from this passage that it is God who exalts Jesus. 
Once again, Jesus doesn't try to take even what is due to him, but instead he has given his glory to the Father. And this glory that Jesus has given comes in four different ways. First, it says in verse 9 that Jesus is exalted to the highest place. Now when it says that Jesus is exalted to the highest place, this is not a comparative term, that it's comparing his positions to all other um, names that we have for high positions. It's not saying that Jesus is better than an emperor or a czar or or Caesar or even supreme leader. Although he is better than those things, this phrase, highest place, means more than that. It's saying that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place possible. And we know from Scripture that that place is reserved for God alone. And it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, signifying equality and glory. We see from this passage that Jesus is no longer humbled. He humbled himself, taking on the flesh of man, and he veiled his glory. He covered up his glory as God. But now that he has been exalted to the highest place, his glory is no longer hidden. It is in full view of everyone. Secondly, we see that Jesus is given the highest name. And when I think about the highest name, I think about how even just the name Jesus is a very high name in our culture. Most people that desire to honor God give the name reverence and respect. And the name is a very beautiful thing for those of us who follow Jesus. But Jesus is given an even greater name. And one of the coolest passages that talks about this high name is in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. This verse is talking about when Jesus comes back in glory to defeat the enemies that are trying to wage war against Israel. He comes back as this glorious king. And let's see what it says about his name. I think this is really, really cool. Starting in verse 19, verse 12, it says, Yeah, there you go. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Once again, how do you get any better than that? Like, his name is so glorious that we can't even know it. It's known only to he himself. And that is the high the highest name that Jesus has been given. And I can't even give you an example because I don't even know what it is. Only he knows. Thirdly, we learn that every knee will bow. Bowing is an act of submission to authority. And there is a time that is coming when Jesus comes back to this earth to reign that the entire world will be in submission to Jesus. Romans 8, verses 19 through 23 explains that creation has been eagerly awaiting this ruling of Jesus. It starts off in verse 19, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the freedom of glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This passage is talking about how the world is still under the curse of sin. But when Jesus returns, the world will be in submission to Jesus. And all of that, that curse will be completely removed. And even we now, as children of God, desperately long for this time when our sin will be removed from us. And the, all the hurt and the pain will go away and we'll be able to live in a kingdom under the submission of Jesus who has authority over everything. There's a really cool clip from The Lord of the Rings. You had to know that was coming. It's me after all. Where Gandalf, who's one of the characters in that movie, comes to visit one of his friends named Theoden. But Theoden has been poisoned by the lies of Saruman, a traitor. And he is not himself. But Gandalf comes and he reveals his glory. And something really cool happens that I think is a great illustration of the change that the world will face when Jesus comes again. Take a look. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. He's a herald of woe. The courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late. Theoden King. He's not welcome. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear. Last spell I name it. Ill news is an ill. Guest. Be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed so far in death to bandy crooked words with the witless worms. Stop. I told you to take the wizard's stop. Theoden, son of Thanger. Too long have you sat in the shadow. I would stay still if I were you. Hearken to me. I release you from the spell. <laughs> you have no power here, Gandalf. The gray. <laughs> I know your face. Anyway. 
Breathe the free air again, my friend. So I, I added a little bit about that because I felt like um, some of the scenes in there were a little bit scary um, for younger children. But I feel like that, that clip just really illustrates um, just the, the change that Jesus will bring when he returns. You can kind of see like Thayden in that, that just he looked old and he was all like crusted over. And when Gandalf revealed himself and as this glorious wizard, really, um, Theoden was made new. And I love that quote at the end that um, Gandalf says. He says, breathe the free air again, my friend. And that is the picture that we look forward to when Jesus returns and reveals his glory to the world. Finally, we see that every tongue will confess. In verses 10 and 11, um, which state, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Um, Those words closely mirror Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, where the Lord God himself says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity that a word will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. These words are spoken of Yahweh in um, Isaiah, are spoken also, like they closely mirror the words that, that Paul is speaking about Christ in Philippians when he writes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The interesting thing about this passage is that Isaiah 45, verses 14 through 25, is a fiercely monotheistic text, meaning it argues over and over and over that there is one God, and God is one. And that these, this bowing and the, the tongue confessing is only reserved for God. We see that in verse 14 of Isaiah 45, when it says, Surely God is with you. There is no other. There is no other God. In verse 18, when it says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. And then in verse 22, the verse directly preceding that verse, for I am God and there is no other. In drawing a parallel to these verses, Paul, in writing Philippians, is intentionally drawing on the singular God concept found in Isaiah 45 to show that Jesus and God are one. Paul is saying that when Jesus is glorified, everyone will see that Jesus is Yahweh himself in the form of flesh, and they will glorify him as God. Jesus' name is so great that it deserves to be given its due respect. However, not everyone today acknowledges Jesus. And when he returns in glory, that will no longer be the case. Think about some of the well-known people in the world who have publicly denounced Jesus. Frederick Nietzsche, Charles Darwin, Mohammed, Adolf Hitler, Richard Dawkins, just to name a few. All of these men will one day have to look at Jesus and acknowledge that he is in fact God that he is the Messiah, 
and they will have to confess and acknowledge that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Fortunately, God has given us the message of the gospel. And he has given us an opportunity to confess that Jesus is Lord willingly rather than being forced to later on in life and have to confess that we were wrong to resist him. My hope is that each and every one of us will choose to submit to his glory, that we will see the significance of the man Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago in the form of a baby. But it didn't end there. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He rose again to give us new life. And he is coming again in glory to rule. And that is the hope that we have as we struggle along in this broken world, enduring the pain and the struggles of everyday life. That one day that will come to an end and we will see our Savior lifted up and we will experience the glory of our King in His true nature. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You're awesome. You are the only one who is worthy of the highest place and of the highest name. Lord, we know that one day you will return in glory and reign forever in a perfect world. Lord, we know that every tongue will confess that you are Lord and every knee will bow down. Lord, I pray that we would learn how to do that now and that our lives would be a sign of submission to the King who loved us enough to die for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to follow you and that we would carry out your mission of making disciples who make disciples and that we would be able to experience your glory forever. Amen. Please stand and join us.